0: Tonight, we are going to finish this series we've been in for the past few weeks on emotionally healthy spirituality. Third John 2, beloved, I pray that in all respects, you may prosper and be in good health as your soul prospers. And we've looked at over the past few weeks the, that what we call the happiness heresy, that God is not really that invested in your happiness, your conformity to his purposes and to his person, yes. But your happiness, if he needs to make you temporarily unhappy to conform you to either one, he will happily do it with a big smile on his God face. And then the challenges to developing a healthy soul, the poison of productivity. And we looked for two weeks at becoming your authentic person. Last week, we looked at what Schizero calls three temptations that keep us from doing that. That I am what I do, performance. I am what I have or I am what others think, which the Bible simply refers to as the fear of man. We know from Proverbs that the fear of man will prove to be a snare. But tonight I want to continue on this process and talk about developing the tools for emotionally healthy spirituality. Developing the tools. Now the first we've already looked at, knowing yourself, authenticity. But the second one tonight I want to look at is the times that we need to sometimes go back to go forward. Going back to go forward. And it begs the question, how much of our past continues to define or distort our present? Let me ask the question again. How much of our past continues to either define or distort our present now we know denial only works so far denial is not the solution I mean you can say well you know that didn't happen or that that that, I I didn't do that but let me just tell you this, this there are other things you can your your head might say it but your heart's going to deny what your head might try to do it doesn't work we can try to compartmentalize it well that was then this is now well, that's partially true, but only once the past has truly been relegated to the past. And it's not just the event of the past, but it's the residue of the past. That many times, maybe, yes, we've gotten over the event. Maybe we've gotten over that particular sin. But how many of you know that there's, there's, there's residue many times that happens? That gets on us. I mean, there can be the sin, but then there's still what? There's a thought, this emotions of shame, this all the, the, the patterns that may get set into motion that have to be dealt with. We have to deal with the realm of our self-perception many times based on our past. That what I was is currently who I am. This is one of the favorite lies of the devil. That you will never be fundamentally different than whatever that defining moment in your past was. Whatever that thing was, whatever that coach said, that teacher, that parent in anger, that somehow that becomes a defining moment that forever tries to mar your perception of who you are. Hmm. It affects the realm of our relationships. How we begin to relate not only to one another, but how we relate to God. And then it also affects us in the realm of our reactions. Why do certain situations bother me so much? Have you ever noticed how certain things just set you off? And you have no idea why is it that that thing gets on my last nerve. But yet this thing over here, which seems to be much more grievous, doesn't seem to bother me at all. Because it's touching some type of nerve that's still connected to the past. That our reactions don't match the action of that particular thing. Somebody says something or they use a word and you react to it. It's like, where did that come from? Have you ever asked ask yourself that question? Where it, why all the energy over this particular situation? And so we have to deal with the past. And sometimes to do that, we have to go back a moment. Have you ever gotten your automobile stuck? Come on. I have many times. And how many of you know that the way to get a car unstuck is not just to drop it into low and put your foot on the gas? How many of you know that that doesn't do anything but make the particular rut that you're in a bit deeper? Come on. But what do you what do you have to do many times? Sometimes you have to do what? Come on, rock that car back and forth. You go in reverse, you go back a little bit, then you put it in drive and reverse a little bit more until those wheels can finally get some some purchase, some traction on that ground. But many times you've got to go backwards just a little bit in order to be able to get the forward momentum to be able to move forward. Many times in our lives, we find ourselves stuck and we think, well, if I just do a little bit more of everything I know to do, if I just, if I can just be a better Christian, whatever, however you think that outworks in your life, if I can just exercise more, if I could just think, th- if I can just do more, come on, drop it into low and hit the gas, then I can somehow get out of this rut. It doesn't always work quite that simply. Sometimes we may have to rock backwards just slightly in order to get some traction in order to move forward. And we can look in Scripture and we can see examples of men and women that, that they're not marked by this. They're not marked and marred by their past. Probably the greatest example that we have recorded in this Bible is Joseph. I mean, a quarter the book of Genesis, is devoted to the story about this man. I mean, can we talk about dysfunctional family for a moment? And not just his daddy, but his daddy and his daddy before him, jacked up. I mean, some pretty messed up people, if you get right down to it. And here's Joseph. I mean, he is the poster child for dysfunction. And yet, it's from Joseph that the entire narrative of the Old Testament continues. Very interesting. He refused to be defined by those events in his family. Whether it was the largeness that was obviously in him from a young age as he began to share the dreams that God was giving him, his own family rejecting him for his own hubris. Although his daddy says he he kept these things in mind, his brothers despised him. That's a hard thing to deal with. But it wasn't just one or two events. It wasn't just family things. It was the first three decades of the man's life. My goodness. He would be a case study for modern psychology. Where do you begin to untangle a guy who is consistently forgotten about and rejected the way that Joseph was? My goodness. And then Joseph has that moment where his brothers show up. He's now the second most powerful human being on the planet. Not bad, is it? Talk about a young man make good. And here his brothers show up. Oh, now this could have been a moment. This could have been a moment. Let me just tell you that he could have allowed the past to come back with all the interest that had accrued on this debt over those three decades. He said, I got you now. Wow. And what was his response? You know, it's interesting that the Bible describes Joseph as a man who walked with God. And Joseph chose, rather than allow the past to define that moment, he chose to contextualize not only his past, but his pain. With this statement, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Oh my goodness. Talk about, I mean, it wasn't that he was denying what happened. He knew who these, who these men were to the point that he was so overwhelmed with his emotions he had to remove himself so he could weep. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to forget it. He wasn't denying it. But he was contextualizing the pain. This was all in the plan and the purposes of God. Oh, my goodness. But what about you and me? How do we contextualize our past as it involves God's trajectory for our lives? Very interesting. Do we see it as God's abandonment? God, why did you forsake me back then in that situation? Or do we see it As God's trajectory for our life. When God shows up. And saints, let me tell you, many times God doesn't show up in the way or the moment that we want him to. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't show up. And sometimes we have to take a step back. We believe this process in the heavenlies whereby, whereby which we, we, we can literally find God as we go back and we, we, we revisit some of these events by the Holy Ghost that Jesus himself makes himself known. Very interesting. And the past truly being relegated to the past means this. We have been grafted into and adopted into a new family. You know, I know Scripture says in a number of different places that the sins of the fathers be visited to the third and fourth generations. But you know, while that's true of natural family, guess what? The family you have been, you and me, you and me have been grafted into, there ain't no curses. Think about that just for a moment. There's nothing to overcome. Come on, in the family. God's family that He's now brought us into, we're not having to deal with any curses in this new family that we're now a part of. There is no baggage. Hmm, nobody got it. I, I really liked that when I wrote it down earlier. <laughs> but there's, there's no baggage in this family. And every family in this room, we all come, come on, with more checked in stuff than you can imagine. My goodness. But we're grafted into something totally new. Talking about tools. Another tool is letting go of power and control. My wife and I just recently gave one of our cars to our kids. He's saying, aren't you kind of old for that? No. That, that You never get too old to continue to give stuff away to your children. Let me just tell you that. So we wound up with another vehicle. And this one is kind of all kind of gizmoed out. It's got these safety feature things on there now that kind of nudge you and tell you certain things. It's called lane assist. You might have a clue what I'm talking. And so you're driving along and the next thing you know, the the steering wheel is saying, I want you to do this. It's like, wait a minute. You, you begin to pray in tongues. You begin to, re- I'll rebuke you, car. I mean, and, and the car, is, it's not self-driving, but the car is, re- is telling you, son, you need to move over here now. And it's not a violent movement, but there's enough, there's enough vibration in the steering wheel. There's, there's enough real momentum that you realize, this car is trying to tell me something here if I'll pay attention. Hmm. And I got to tell you, I didn't like it much. Matter of fact, I cut it off. It just freaked me out. (laughs) You know why? Because I want to be in control. I don't want a piece of machinery telling me what to do. Any more than a little lady coming out of the GPS telling me where to turn. Now I've got the car telling me. You know what, old man? You need to kind of slout over there because you're crowding somebody else's lane. Uh-huh. I love control. Some years ago, I was taking an international flight, and I have a friend that flies a lot like this, and he would given me some Ambien. And Ambien is a, um, what would you call it? It's a sleep aid. That's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? And I was going on a missions trip, and I was traveling with a medical professional. So I took an Ambien. And so this medical professional was watching me all night long fight this drug because I don't like what... I don't like how it makes me feel. So all night, th- this ambient was telling my body to do one thing, and I was telling my body to do another thing. And this, 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 this physician I was traveling with, they were just laughing because they knew, they knew me. They say, you fought that thing all night. It never did put me out. I'm an idiot. That's why I took it. Because I had been told by my friend who does a lot of this travel, ah, brother, just take one of these, it'll put you down. He's taken so many, it would take 12 to put this man down, but that's another story. Trying to keep him anonymous. (laughs) Control. You know, even as an unbeliever, and I'll just admit this to you, I, I never did drugs. Yes, I was a music major. Never did drugs. <laughs> I've never been drunk. And not because of some ethical system that was built into my family before I was a believer. Because I, in my family, I come from a family of alcoholics and drug addicts and smokers and people that, you know, hey... Let's see if we can really mess our bodies up. I come from all of that. And yet, I just didn't want, I didn't, I didn't do it. You know why? Not because I saw anything right or inherently wrong with it. It's I just didn't want to do what? Lose control. Isn't it just amazing what God will use and the quirks of our personality to protect us? And <laughs> that, weird? never mind. And yet, if you get down to what most of us really want, it's not just money or health or authority. You know what we really want? We want a sense of control over our lives. Come on. Think about the situations that make you the most uncomfortable. They are the very situations where you are what? Out of control. Think about it. I mean, I look at the things, what sets me off more than anything else? Let's think about a few. Being put on hold. Are you with me? Your approximate wait time is four days. And so, you know, you you know what I'm talking about? And you realize you are out of control in that particular moment. That if you ever want your internet service to come back, you're going to have to wait and be held in host- held hostage by your approximate wait time. You know what I'm talking about. Waiting in line, waiting in traffic. Can we talk about that one? Come on, we're all Washington, D.C., almost ites here. Don't we love I-66? Don't we just love the variables of traffic? I mean, WTOP you know that is the top-rated radio station in the entire United States? Isn't that interesting? Just telling me, well, volume is heavy. I knew that. <laughs> it looks like Christmas headed down the road here. I mean, I'm seeing all these red lights here. I got it. Traffic, out of control, flying. There's one. There's one. Talk about no control. Bureaucracy, you know what I'm talking about. But control speaks to authority, submission, the architecture of life. But it also speaks to lordship. And lordship means someone else is in charge. And the thing that grates against our soul and many times against our emotional health is the idea you ain't in charge, son. And to the extent that you continue to try to be is to the extent that you are going to jack up and mess up your life. And the product for this is not just obedience and submission, that's an outworking, but it's the emotional internal working. When we finally can get this thing down, it's peace. Oh, it's, we can get a happy joy. Things get not only just worked out of us, but things get worked into us when we're able to relinquish control about certain things. Someone said years ago, he's Lord of all or he's Lord of none. This concept of selective lordship. God is consultant. God is an emergency responder. Rather than God is the divine regulator of life. And part of that control is the need to figure it out. Come on. We're having a prophetic conference here. Many people will come and they'll want a word for their life so that they can figure it out. They want to climb into the mind of God (laughs) and get the blueprint, get the plans, get the timing. And prophet boy, the more specific you can be, the more helpful that might be for you. Hmm. Trying to figure it out. Stephen Hawking passed away this morning. A devout atheist and theoretical physicist and cosmologist. And In an interview in 2014, Hawking said this. Before we understand science, it's natural to believe that God created the universe. But now science offers a more convincing explanation. You see, for Hawkins, tragically, there was no saving acknowledgement of God. His lifelong quest, whether it was the study of black holes and matter, whether it was his understanding of how it all started, he spent his life 76 years trying to figure it out. Sadly, he's got some answers right now. Job's struggle was trying to figure it out. But trying to acknowledge God through all the stuff. And in that, Job had a bit of a what? A crisis. And we do great when all is well. When our life and our soul and God is overtly blessing our lives, but what when it's not so evident? Is God still in control? And in those moments when we don't, when we're not seeing all the evidence that we would define as God being in control, do we at that that point take the reins of our life back and say, God, obviously you ain't got this, and so I'm going to drive for a while. And the tragedy with this is God says, go ahead, drive. Be a little bit like putting one of us behind behind the cockpit of a 767. Go ahead, fly this thing. You'd be upside down real fast. St. Benedict in the 6th century developed a 12-step ladder for growing in humility. Because what I'm talking about is when we, when we truly get to the place that we yield control, one of the things that gets built into your life and mine is humility. On St. Benedict's Ladder of Humility, there are eight steps here. First one is the fear of God and the mindfulness of him. Step two, doing God's will, not your own or other people's. Step three, willing to subject ourselves to the direction of others. The fourth, the patience to accept the difficulty of others. Hmm. Forbearance. Radical honesty to others about your weaknesses and faults. Step six, deeply aware of being chief of all sinners. Number seven, speaking less. And step eight, transformation into the love of God. Emotionally healthy spirituality, losing control to let God be in control. Number four, we're talking about tools or the rhythms of life. Music's made up of two parts, pitch and rhythm, and both have to be accurate for music, as you and I understand it, to be recognizable. That if you were to play all the right notes, but play them in the wrong rhythm, then the tune that you're trying to discern, it's not going to be discernible to you. So it takes both of them being accurate, so to speak. It's the very same with life. It's not just about getting the melody correct. But it's about getting the timing right as well. And I can tell you that for musicians, this is hard. Tiffany, Pastor Tiffany can tell you. I mean, you see these little things in people's ears up here? That's just not so they can hear themselves better. Is that you know what's going on in their ears? drummer the bass player and everybody's listening to this click track that's one of the reasons that they don't speed up and slow down that's why there's no drunk driving happening with our worship team rhythmically but they've got some help but you realize you and i have some help too galatians 5 25 says since we live by the spirit let us keep in step what with the spirit And I believe that my my application of that passage is not just that we walk like God walks, but we walk at the same pace by which God is walking. Daniel, on a more macro level, Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. Sets up kings, deposes him. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. And I really believe part of that wisdom and knowledge is timing, seasons, rhythm, that we understand it. I'm getting older. My wife is not. It's a miracle. But have you ever heard old folks complain about getting old? I had a grandmother and she was like 92 or 94 years old. And we would sit with her and she would just complain. I just, I can't do this and I can't do that. And I can't half here anymore. And I can't have C anymore. And it's like, Woman, I you're 94 years old. What, are the ex- what, what, are your, what were your expectations at being 94? Limitations. But yet sometimes my wife and I, we do the same thing. I mean, I'll go outside having done nothing for weeks on end, go out there, grab a chainsaw, start cutting trees up, moving billets, splitting wood, stacking wood, and I'll come in in the evening and it's just like, I'm sore. I'm, I'm tired. Why am I tired? It's just like, because you're not 25 anymore. That's why. And sometimes we just look at each other. It's just like, and, and we have to remind each other that we're not 25 anymore. We're in a different season of life. But it offends us. Sometimes we get, come on, I'm sorry. But we get offended. Hmm. Now, I know Pastor Brad, he'll be doing what he's doing when he's 105. That's great. But sometimes I'm finding myself downshifting just slightly. Mentally, you know, having to think again, what's his name? That's why I love our ministry in every nation. Friend. And then compounding all of this is what our modernity has brought to us. It's labeled as a benefit. It's called speed. And what's labeled as a benefit, many times it's not a benefit at all. And we all need rhythm. Life's based upon it. Your heart gets out of rhythm. And I've got some friends that struggle with arrhythmia. They have to go in occasionally and get shocked back and get their heart back in rhythm. And it's ugly. Other folks, they have, my mother has a pacemaker to help keep her heart in rhythm. And you get out of rhythm in that part of your body, and it can be a fatal event. And yet, could I submit to you that both emotionally and spiritually, there's a rhythm that while it might not be fatal, it will certainly hinder and hamper our lives if we don't get in the right rhythm with God. And then there are those things that we need to build in to our life. I don't have time to unpack this much, but Skizzero unpacked what something that for the most part has kind of passed away, but it was known as the daily office. You know, we have in our charismatic world, we have this idea of the quiet time. Come on. I had some quiet time with God this morning. It's like rolling your Tesla up and plugging it in and get it juiced up and then hoping that you don't go more than the allotted miles. But the daily office was set up a little bit differently in that at set times during the day there were moments where there were moments of scripture reading or prayer or solitude or meditation. And I'm not talking about something weird and cultic here. I'm I'm talking about something biblical. David practiced set times of prayer seven times a day. Psalm 119, Daniel prayed three times a day. Devout Jews during Jesus' time prayed two or three times a day. We have every idea that Jesus himself probably followed that same Jewish custom of praying at set times. You can say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? I thought he was supposed to prompt me to pray. Well, yes, but the question is, are you listening? I do the best I can to walk in enough intimacy with God that if something gets dropped on me that I can respond to that prompting. But I got to tell you, many times I've got so much coming at me that my concern is I sometimes I just miss it. Are you with me? Because Right or wrong, I'm not interruptible in that particular moment. And just in the busy and the busyness of life and the issues of life, you know, hours just begin to click by, and sometimes there's not much cognizance or thought of God. The daily office brings us back to that. And I'm not trying to institute something ecclesiastically here. I'm just talking about ways whereby which we, we, we walk with this God awareness. Some things that God has, I believe, put in place. And the other one is the Sabbath. The Sabbath just, that word just means to cease from labor, cease from work. And The Sabbath is not something that God just gave to man, Hebrews 4. Strive to enter that rest, it says. But it's something whereby which God himself set forth as a principle from the very beginning of the Sabbath. It's very interesting. But both of these things, why are you talking about that, Pastor Jim? Because it has to do with the rhythm of life. The daily office, a rhythm. The Sabbath, a rhythm that every seven. Come on. In Israel, the the rhythm of land lying fallow, the rhythm of jubilee. God had built this in. The series of festivals and feasts, it was built in and it provided a real sense of rhythm to that entire community. Hmm. Number five, we need to grow up. And it's hard work growing up. You know why? Because none of us really wants to be an adult. I mean, really. Can we just get right down to it? I mean, do you remember when you were, you know, when when you were, I can't wait to be an adult. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. Until you started paying your own rent. Until finally the visa card was in your name. And you start getting the calls. (laughs) And no one really wants to grow up because it's hard work. And it takes both the will and skill to do it. 1 Corinthians 13, when I what? Past tense, was a what? doesn't say while I'm still remaining a child. It says when I was a child. This is what I did, but now I have put, what does the scripture say? I've put off childish things. And the response and emotional responses of children are quite different. Or should be than those of adults, and yet you see many adults, and their emotional responses are identical to their kids, and they wonder, they look at their children, "Where'd you get that from? Learned it from you." Hmm. First Peter two. Crave pure, pure, pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Ephesians 4.15, that in all things we can grow up into Christ. And then last, just the rule of life. You know, the rule of life, that, that, that word rule there doesn't mean like something that you would write down and you would obey. It comes from the Greek word that means trellis. And a trellis, as you know, is something that everything else, a plant, grows upon that trellis. And on that trellis, the gardener, the husbandman, has a chance to direct the course of that plant. Be it a grapevine, be it whatever plant it might be, but it directs it on that architecture of that trellis. This is a rule of life. And if you wish, it provides... it's. The rule of life is an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything that we do. Another way of putting it that might be a little bit easier to comprehend is what I call the priority of priority. You see, when we get our priorities out of order, then everything else falls out of order. Let me give you an example. In a household, the husband's primary Responsibility is not to his children. A husband's primary responsibility is to his what? His wife. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't have any responsibility. Don't hear the wrong thing. But I'm talking about primary responsibility. And so once we get our priorities right, Jesus, spouse, children, peers. Are we okay here? Jesus, spouse, children, And then it begins to fall out from there. But if we get Jesus out of that priority of priorities, we try to put our spouse in that place, our children in that place, anything else in that place. How many of you know that all of a sudden there is no trellis anymore? There is no rule of life because we violated the priority that God said from the beginning was what? Himself. Thou shalt have no other what? Anything that we place in that primary position it either already is a deity or it's vying to become one in our life. Hmm. And it's amazing how a few people have a really conscious plan for developing their spiritual lives. Christians are functional, but they're not intentional many times. And we find ourselves unfocused, distracted. Sunday I, I made mention of the three-legged stool that we believe here at grace, although we've just we've we've never really used that terminology, and I'm, I'm not trying to insert it, you know, as, as any kind of a statement, but we believe here that for you to come into a kind of a rule of life of how do I develop? What what is what consciously do I need to do to continue to develop as a disciple? Then it's Sunday morning, it's Wednesday night, and it's small group. And again, you can sit on a stool with two legs, but you're going to have to work real hard not to fall in the floor because you're constantly going to be having to navigate it. But those three legs, that tripod, that's one of the strongest geometric ways that you can construct something or build something is with three legs, a triangle. And that's what we believe. That's part of our if you wish rule of life here at Grace. So what have I said this evening? Developing the tools for emotionally healthy spirituality. My dad was a woodworker, he was a carpenter. He had a shop full of amazing tools that made a lot of noise and could do a lot of damage. I remember him used to he 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 used to tell me he said, "You know the most dangerous tool in the shop is a dull one because that's the one that's going to cut you and he worked overtime at keeping his tool sharp, putting chisels down in a certain way, no, no, you don't put a chisel down that way, so that that edge that he had worked on sometimes for an hour so that it was that, that when he put it to a piece of wood, he could roll off stuff you could you could see through because it was so sharp. These are the tools that God wants us to develop. You know, I've got a, I got a box full of tools at home. And I tell you, my chisels, they're, they're pretty ugly. <laughs> they're not sharp like my dad's were. And I can eventually get the job done, but it's with a lot of, Groaning and sweating and using some words that aren't sometimes sanctified. Why? Because I have not used the tools properly. I haven't kept them sharp. And God wants us to develop the tools, keep them sharp, and use them regularly. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, help us. Thank you that you indeed You came not just to set the captives free and to heal the sick. But God, you have set forth the ability for us to walk in health.